Faithful Exiles is a podcast that explores life following Jesus Christ in South Africa. We want to think deeply about what the Bible has to say about life and talk about what that might mean in the situations God has placed us in. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are not necessarily those held by the host, co-host, or production team. As this is a discussion and not a pure teaching platform, it is up to the listener to engage with the content responsibly. Well, hello there and welcome to another episode of Faithful Exiles. Uh, it's great to have you with us and we have a really great topic lined up today as we think about our mission and calling as followers of Jesus Christ and particularly how that relates to the biblical story. Uh, how do I find my place in the biblical story? How do I summarize the story of the whole Bible and why is that important? Uh, our guest for today is the Reverend Jay Stoms, an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church of America who spent nearly two decades serving as a missionary theologian on the African continent, firstly um, teaching theology in Malawi at the Africa Bible College, and then working among international students in Stellenbosch. Uh, we asked him about his experiences ministering in these very different contexts, the importance of story for reading the Bible and for preaching, about the key elements of the biblical story and some of the practical implications of all of this for the Christian life. Welcome, and enjoy reflecting with us on finding my place in the biblical story. Let's, let's begin by just getting to know you a, a little bit. Um, let's firstly hear the story of how you ended up on the African conti- um, continent. You grew up in the Pacific Northwest, Seattle area. Um, how did you end up in Africa? Well, I, I, was, I was converted at a later age, 26. Uh, was in business for a while, but felt uh, calling into ministry. Did a lot of sort of... Uh, one-on-one evangelism, and uh, went to seminary, came back to Seattle, worked in churches, was ordained, um, worked with church planners, did youth ministry, um, led services, things like that, but never really found my ministry, my niche, and uh, went back into business for a while. Then I had an opportunity to meet um, Dr. Richard Pratt. He's got a ministry called Third Millennium Ministry. used to be uh, a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. And um, I was talking to him, and he said, you know, I'd go to English-speaking Africa if I was you, you know, because I was asking him about ministry. He said, um, so I looked into it, and I had a professor, O. Palmer Robertson, and uh, he was teaching. Uh, his, his, um, his sister and brother-in-law had started some Bible colleges in, in Africa, Liberia, Malawi, and um, later in Uganda. And uh, he made it possible for me to come there. And so I ended up uh, just visiting for a semester. But then I stayed for almost 12 years. Okay, wow. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard it often said that the future of Christianity is in Africa as well. I mean, I know that's also been a big motivating force. Yes, I mean, as I, as I got over the fear of coming, um, a lot of it never, the fears never materialized, you know, but... There's a lot of unknown coming from America, uh, thinking about Africa and such. But once I got into it, studying uh, the first Christendom by Philip Jenkins, seeing some of the uh, statistics um, about the growth of the church on the continent of Africa from 10 million at the turn of the century to, um, you know, let's say 400 million by the year, you know, 2000. And now they're even projecting as many as a billion Christians in the next 30 years. Wow. So with, a, with the growth in population and with the expansion of the church, the center of gravity of Christianity has shifted to the southern hemisphere and particularly to Africa. So in my opinion, the future of Christianity 
will be shaped by African Christianity. Yeah, that's great. It's, and that's why it's a great place to be, I think, right now. And maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what have been some of the joys, some of the challenges as well uh, during this, this time in Africa. Well, I would say uh, the, well, we'll start with the, cho uh, the challenges. The challenges are moving to a different culture, um, being away from parents, grandparents, uh, the difficulties of traveling and housing, you know, visas, passports, all that kind of stuff, uh, particularly education of children. I've got three daughters. And um, so those are, those are challenges. Um, but the joys, I think, are just working with people that become and seeing them grow and become influential. Uh, former students and people, international students that we've worked with, for instance, uh, most recently, uh, a student from Malawi, Sean Campandini, he's become the executive uh, assistant to the president of Malawi. So he's like the press secretary for the, for the president of Malawi, and he was probably the top student I ever had. And um, another would be uh, Brian Camwendo, who is the deputy general secretary of the Church of Central Africa Presbyterian in Malawi. So uh, that denomination is a Presbyterian denomination. There's about three, they have about 3,000, I mean, 3 million, wow. <laughs> 3 million communicant members. Yeah. So that's the, the More than the church in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, if you take all the Presbyterian denominations in the States, yeah. uh, there are m as much or more Presbyterians in the little country of Malawi than wow. there are in the entire United States. Yeah. Well, I think let's get into the content um, of what we really want to talk about today. Um, so you've, you've learned a lot through your experience of teaching theology in Africa, and particularly this aspect of stories, um, the importance of seeing the Bible as one grand unified story. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about that journey um, as you've been teaching theology, how you came to realize the importance okay. of this? Well, I mean, I came teaching systematic theology, so I was, uh, and still, you know, see the value and love systematic theology. But that was, uh, that was kind of an overemphasis that I had, and I found working with Africans that didn't always resonate with them, not because of their lack of rationality or their incapacity to understand theology, but it had more to do with um, coming from oral cultures. And uh, so I came to the realization when my daughter, Claire, she, when she was about five, she loved stories. So I, 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 she always wanted me to tell stories, and I had like a night and day type conversion when I became a Christian. So I told her all my age-appropriate, you know, stories, and she wanted more stories. So, you know, I had to ask myself, God had given me a book of stories, but how many stories had I really internalized that I could tell naturally to my daughter at her bedside? I could, I could teach her, or I could tell her, you know, propositions uh, theological propositions from scripture and that might put her to sleep but uh, that wasn't exactly the the complete object so I was teaching a class in Daniel Revelation so I, I knew the, the the narrative portions of, of Daniel pretty well the first six chapters so I started telling her those stories and she really she really loved those and and so what happened was we had a prison ministry and I went to uh, this Malua prison and I started teaching these stories from Daniel and I was telling um, there was just one, one key point where it sort of re really drove home for me when I was telling the story of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream tree. Nebuchadnezzar was frightened by his dream, and he had Daniel uh, explain it to him, but there was a tree that was so enormous and seen from all the ends of the earth. 
And Daniel t interpreted saying this was Nebuchadnezzar. This tree was chopped down. The leaves and, and branches were stripped away. And then ultimately ne Nebuchadnezzar was, he lost his country or he lost his, his kingship. He was uh, driven away and um, he, he ate, you know, he was given the mind of a beast. He ate grass like a beast. And he um, was drenched with the dew of heaven for seven years until he looked to heaven and he, his mind was renewed, his kingdom was renewed, and he acknowledged and confessed that Daniel's God was the most high God, everything he did was just and right, and that he could humble those who walk in pride. So when I told this story, you know, we had a great discussion amongst the men there at the prison, and then one of the inmates, you know, he stood up and he said, guys, you know, he said, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of all the kings, he had everything, he had to lose everything before he repented, and then he said, look at us, we have nothing, who are we not to repent? And I thought, you know, here's this uneducated guy, and um, he was able to understand the application or, or, you know, the implications of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God through the simple story alone, really. Yeah. And so, you know, that drove home the, the power of that. So I started teaching in systematic theology stories or add stories to my teaching, biblical stories. And when I was dealing, when we were dealing with salvation, or the sovereignty of God and salvation. I told the story of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, you know, when he was blinded and then he, you know, he uh, couldn't see for three days and then God called Ananias to lay hands on Saul and saying, this is my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to their kings and the people of Israel. He lays hands on him, you know, his, his eyes, his stores, his, his eyesight is restored and then he goes, you know, he's, he gets up, he's baptized, he goes you know, almost immediately into the synagogues and starts preaching and until, you know, his life is threatened and then they put him in a basket and they lower him down through the city wall and he has to escape. So when I told this story, we again discussed and everything until one student raised his hand and I said, you know, what, is, what, what can we learn from the story? And the student raised his hand and he said, Election, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I thought, uh, any questions <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on that? Yeah. So I just learned the power of of, of yeah. the biblical stories and the the ability of the Holy Spirit to speak through the stories themselves, yeah. as to be more effective than straight propositional type preaching. Yeah, yeah. I know there's teaching. one there's one scholar as well, Seon King Kim, actually argued Korean scholar who argued that Paul's gospel actually large aspects of it like election like you've just said came out of his own experience you know so you see those truths um those doctrinal truths arising you know out of the story yeah i mean paul was uh, he was he, he was given authority to arrest you know the followers of the way yeah so he you know he's not what we would call a seeker yeah but exactly you know so it was really you know god was seeking him yeah Exactly, exactly. So you spent um, nearly a decade teaching theology at the Africa Bible College, moved to do international student ministry here in Stellenbosch. Can you tell us a little bit about the motivation, the thinking behind that particular move? Well, we got to know Stellenbosch and a church in Stellenbosch <clears throat> because two of my daughters were born here in South Africa, in Stellenbosch. And we felt God was calling us away from the traditional sort of Western-style Bible college uh, and we felt that God was actually extending and expanding our ministry by working with international students, particularly African students that were coming from all across the continent, leaders in various fields that are coming to the University of Stellenbosch to study. 
and we can help connect them with the local church, one another, and to Christ through the gospel. And since these are leaders and future leaders in various parts of Africa, and we think that the future of Africa, of the future of Christianity, be shaped by African Christianity, how can we influence these leaders if we can empower them to tell and to the biblical story and to preach and teach the the biblical narrative and the gospel of Christ as the fulfillment of that? Empower them so that when they get back to their home areas they can use uh, a way that is sort of more consistent with the African methodology, you know, as one student once told me, um, this is more consistent with a, um, an African communal storytelling methodology. So we can empower them to strengthen the African church yeah. that will shape the future of Christianity because of the sheer numbers alone. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's think a little bit about um, stories in general. Um, and think a little bit about aspects of stories, because this is obviously key to understanding stories. So let's explore that a little bit. Um, how would you define story? Um, there's obviously a lot of scholarly work on this, but how would you broadly define story? What makes up a story? What makes a story different to just a set of events? Yeah, I mean, one of the things in terms of communicating, you know, stories is the simplicity of it. So rather than, you know, some scholarly, you know, uh, explanation. I'm just thinking a, a story is just an event, the telling of an event or a series of events. And stories typically have, you know, a beginning and a middle and an end. But, um, you know, more, more than that, they're not just a series of events, but those episodes are structured in such a way in order to create tension, a plot. So there's a sort of setting or a situation, and then that the, some conflict is introduced, and that conflict may be further complicated, and it moves towards a resolution. So that's what I'm thinking in terms of story. You know, sort of situation resolution, com uh, situation complication resolution. Great, yeah, and, and characters and all those other aspects sure. as well. Yeah, yeah, but let's think a little bit, a lot of your research has been into to preaching. Um, I know different styles of preaching, um, how should this fact that the biblical story or the Bible is largely a story, how should that impact preaching? What different styles of preaching are there out there? Um, I know that you know, the, the accusation is often guys coming out of Bible college or out of seminary. They love to just preach from the epistles and kind of propositions. Um, yeah, through your research, what have you learned about that, different styles of preaching as well? And yeah, I think as I was going through this whole process, one of the things that I discovered, you know, uh, was that when we had visitors coming from the States and from the Western world, pastors preaching, like preaching in our chapel or preaching in the prison, you know, at least three quarters of the time, they're preaching Pauline or pastoral epistles. Because most, most Western preachers, and this is what I was taught, was taught a straight deductive form of preaching. So, you know, with deductive preaching, you're, you're going, the pastor is, is or, or, you know, the interpreter is going to the passage, looking at the particulars, and then coming to some type of general conclusion. Then in the presenting of that, they start with the general conclusion. And then they, they present it in the form of an argument. You know, they use the particulars of the passage to either explain the proposition or prove the proposition or apply the proposition. Um, and one of the challenges is that, I mean, with dealing with Africans and dealing with people coming from oral cultures, that doesn't really speak that well. And also, when I was looking 
at the sermons in Luke, uh, I mean, well, Luke Acts, but particularly in Acts, the, the sermons of Peter and Paul, I didn't really find that that's what they're doing. I know some people claim that that's what they're doing, but I don't think that they're doing that. What they're really doing, in my thinking anyway, is they're telling the story of Jesus as the culmination of the story of Israel, mm -hmm. which is the you know, fulfillment of the overall biblical story. And that's what they're doing most of the time. So they're, they're, they're touching on the highlights, Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And sometimes in our evangelism and preaching, we don't even, even touch those subjects, you know. So let's think a little bit more about the power of stories. I mean, I've often heard it said that, you know, the stories can often kind of get behind your walls. The gods people often have in, in a subversive way challenge you, challenge your thinking, challenge your worldview. Uh, would you say that's true and maybe uh, yeah, from your own experience? Uh, I think so. I mean, that's one of the, one of the, um, the challenges of a straight deductive method. method. It's, it's sort of if I come off and I just tell you right away, when I'm, this is what I'm going to talk to you about or this is what I'm going to preach about, you know, there, there's no tension, there's no suspense. Um, so if you go the other way and you start with the particulars and then you move to a general conclusion, particularly if you structure it in the form of a, of a story so that you have a situation, a complication, I mean, or a conflict, further complication towards resolution, it's more engaging, more intriguing. And it's kind of the way the overall biblical story works as well. So you have, you know, creation and then you have fall and then, of course, you have a further complication because part of the resolution is Israel and it sort of gets further complicated and then it comes to a conclusion in Jesus. So what I found was, uh, particularly in evangelism, if you're too, uh, you know, too direct, and I, I did quite a bit of this using evangelism explosion at one time where, you know, you're confronting people, even people, you know, like in a university setting or people on the street and you're asking them about, you know, what they would say if they stood before God. Uh, you know, why should they go into heaven? So you're, you're immediately kind of, yeah, you're pre emphasizing grace, but you're going right to sin and the atonement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you're, you're sort of stripping that from the overall biblical story. And so I think a lot of times the, the people's cultural stories, I mean, one of the things I've learned is that people are defined by their, their history, their values, or their history and their values are, are, are defined uh, and their identity are defined by stories. And so um, if you just get bits and pieces of the gospel rather than, you know, the bigger biblical narrative that finds its fulfillment in Christ, that uh, people will remain defined by their cultural stories. So they might, they might give assent, you know, to what you're saying, mm. but it may not actually challenge their cultural worldview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you see also interesting, we were t talking a little bit earlier, examples of even in, in the Bible itself, people like Nathan... Um, the prophet challenging King David, but not challenging him directly, telling him a story. Um, so I think you see that power there. Let's think a little bit. We've spoken quite a bit about the, the grand biblical story. Uh, there are obviously um, different ways of telling that story. Firstly, I, I think you've already kind of answered the question why it's so important to see it as one grand story. Otherwise, you get defined by your own cultural story. There are obviously also different ways of telling this one grand story of the Bible. Can you maybe tell us, how, how would you tell it? Um, um, how would you tell that one big yeah. grand story? Well, I mean, the way that it came together for me was that uh, my professor, old Palmer Robertson, had a book on covenants, Christ and the covenants. So first, I, I saw co covenantal thinking as a way of structuring the whole Bible. Uh, one of the things I found, though, is that I taught 
I still taught those 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 uh, those epochs or those kind of principal points where the where the story is sort of further unfolded. You know, covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant with Moses. You know, new covenant in Christ. Um, I still taught it thematically or topically. So I would, I would touch on those points and teach it topically. So then I was in or sort of introduced to the, the kingdom concept more, more. And so um, I was trying to blend kingdom and covenant. But the more I got into orality, oral cultures, being in Africa, I, I wanted to tell it more like a natural story. So the way uh, I tell the story, and of course it's, it's a bit long, so I'll just start at the calling of Abraham, but God had a plan to bless the world through Abraham and his descendants. They go down into Egypt, they multiply, but they become enslaved. So God delivers them out through Moses. He eventually brings them into their land under Joshua, but they don't take possession of it until the time of King David. And then, you know, David's son builds a... Builds a uh, a temple for God to dwell in the midst of his people, but he also introduced an idolatry that split the nation, so the northern kingdom was scattered and defeated by the Assyrians. But God had promised to bless the world through Abraham and his descendants, and through and he promised to give David a perpetual kingship over God's people, so he preserved them. They went into exile in, in, in Babylon, but they returned, but they never really lived up to the glory of the kingdom prophesied by the various you know prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And so they remain dominated by various pagan world empires. And so they're longing for a king, a conquering king, to come and deliver them during the time of the Roman Empire. And God gave them Jesus. Not really what they were expecting, but when Jesus was uh, announced by John the, baptism, um, John the Baptist at his baptism, he was confirmed to be the Son of God by the voice from heaven. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit to preach good news to the poor and liberation for captives and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. He was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness where he overcame Satan's temptation. He comes back in the power of the Spirit. He's, he exercises his authority in teaching and preaching, in the exercising of demons. He shows his power. He claims to forgive sins. He shows his power over sin and uh, sickness as well as even raising people from the dead. And once his disciples recognize his messianic identity, Peter confesses him to be the Christ of God. Uh, then he sets his face, in Luke's gospel anyway, he sets his face towards Jerusalem where he's going to suffer many things. He's going to be killed and he's going to be crucified on a Roman cross. And he looked like a, uh, so, you know, he looked like a messianic pretender, but he was declared with power uh, by the spirit of holiness to be uh, the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And so then he showed himself to be alive to his disciples with many convincing proofs over 40 days. He ascended into heaven before their very eyes and poured out his Holy Spirit on his church so that they can extend and expand his work, you know, or his kingdom throughout the world as Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting for the renewal of all things when he comes back to usher in what I would say the new heavens and the new earth. And so it could be told many different ways, but that's, you know. The yeah, and we live in that in-between time now. Yeah. And I think it's also important, uh, I've often heard it said that for telling it that way as a story that climaxes in Jesus, so it doesn't just become, you know, the typical example is like the story of David 
you know, is told in such a way that you're identified with the main character and, you know, you're the one who has to overcome the enemies in your life. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's, I think that's, that's very important in the telling of the story. But let's also think a little bit about this aspect of being defined by other stories, other cultural stories. You mentioned that. Um, what kind of stories are out there and, and how is it possible that people can sort of know bits and pieces of the gospel but not be defined by this one grand story of God who created the world and who is in the process of recreating the world in Christ and will one day renew it yeah. um, fully. What other cultural stories are out there that, that in your experience often typically can define people? Well, I mean, I think every culture has its stories. You know, I mean, here in South Africa, if you were to talk about the history of South Africa, if you talk to Afrikaner, you're going to get one version of a story. If you talk to an English uh, South African, it might be slightly different. Uh, if you're talking to Kosa or Zulu, you're going to have a different story told. Um, in America, where I'm from, you know, even now we have a kind of a battle of story going on. So, you know, these stories are 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 crucial in defining cultures. You know. So I've often you heard you said when we've been talking about the biblical story, that this emphasis that you find, it's interesting that you began that story with Abraham and the plan to bless the world, um, that God always had this plan for one multi-ethnic, multi-class people of God, one people of God. And I think that's a big emphasis in Paul as well. Um, there's no, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ. What kind of, uh, how does that when that is your dominant story, how does that help you begin to address some of these these tensions? Um, yeah. Well, you know, I start um, Daryl Bach, who's an expositor um, from the states. You know, he he was speaking at University of Stellenbosch, and he confirmed this. He said that he thought Luke he thought Luke's gospel was he referred to it as the neglected gospel historically. So in Luke's gospel, particularly, you know, you have the inclusion of the marginalized in the gospel itself, and then in the second part, you know, the, the gospel of Acts, you know, um, or the book of Acts, you have <clears throat> the inclusion, you know, of the of first, you know, you have, the, you have the Galileans, disciples, and then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Jews from all around the empire, and then you have the inclusion of, Jude so you have Judeans and Galileans together, and then you get into La Acts 8, you have the inclusion of Samaritans, and then with the calling of Paul, you begin the Gentile, you know, mission movement, the inclusion of Gentiles into one multi-ethnic, multi-class people of God. So when I read that particularly Luke-Acts narrative, I see this one multi-ethnic, multi-class people of God uh, that communicates that Jesus is the Lord of all the peoples of all the earth. And I think that's been neglected in Western history, and I don't think that you would have apartheid, you wouldn't have had the justification, you know, it's the religious justification of apartheid, the religious justification of Jim Crow segregation, that if you had that type of emphasis, one multi-ethnic people, multi-class people, in one body, that it would be very hard to, to, to have that in any way prominent in Christian circles. Yeah. So your research has particularly been into preaching and different styles of preaching, deductive, narrative preaching. Do you want to give us a little breakdown of the differences there, some of the strengths and the weaknesses you see um, towards yeah. those particular methodologies? Yeah, I think I've come to the point where, although I was trained in straight deductive preaching, that there is no one method of preaching. 
and the different genres of scripture require different sermonic forms or structures of sermons, but we have to realize that the, the majority of scripture is coming to us as a story in a narrative form. So we need to have a sermonic form that, 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 that does justice to that kind of narrative. So deductive would be, you know, you go to the passage, you look at the particulars, you come to a, a, a general conclusion, but then you present it in the opposite order. You, you, you present it, here, here's what it's about, and then you use the particulars to either explain or to prove or to apply that proposition or theme or big idea. Now, and, and that's, that's the way I was taught. I, I, I learned that. But working with Africans and stories and oral, uh, oral cultures, I, I kind of thought that's not the only way to do it. And it really doesn't do necessarily justice to some biblical you know, genres like, like stories and parables and stuff like that. So I learned that there was a more uh, inductive way and in, in inductive, you know, you do the same thing. You go from the particulars to a general conclusion and hopefully a kind of a gospel resolution or, or an aha. But then you present it in a similar fashion that you discover it. So you start with the particulars and then you move towards a resolution. So you could put it in the form of a story as a setting and a complication or a conflict or a further complication moving towards a resolution. And then in African-American preaching, particularly some of the uh, prominent homileticians within African-American uh, African church will talk about uh, situation, complication, resolution, celebration. So, uh, but there's no one form, but in narrative preaching, you know, you can take even a deductive um, uh, section of, of scripture and present it more like a problem resolution. So that would be what we call like plotted sermons, that they move towards, uh, you know, a, a conflict resolution. And the thing with that, it's like if, you, if you're too deductive in the sense, it's like telling a joke and giving away the punchline at the beginning. So there, there's something to creating tension yeah. uh, and suspense that leads to, you know, the desire to, to hear the conclusion or uh, a resolution. And a lot of bi biblical stories, they just come to us that way. Yeah. So that's a natural way of, of teaching. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, so perhaps like if someone in the audience listening to this is kind of more on the deductive side, like if I were to play devil's advocate for their sake now, then, and I'm not really in this debate, so I have no stakes yeah. on this, but if I were to ask maybe a critical question, then it would be something of the order of, uh, events and stories require interpretation, and if one doesn't have kind of uh, interpretation like the apostles give us in the epistles, then one leaves it open to, hypothetically, any kind of interpretation. So I think perhaps the more propositional side of the argument would say, you know, that's kind of the risk that one runs. So how would one, in a, in a kind of balanced biblical way, kind of address some of those concerns? Yeah, well, what I, what I would say is that epistles are, are um, you know, those are those are later documents. I mean, later in the history, uh, but um, they're a fuller fulfillment, and they do they do explain. But what do they explain? They explain the biblical story. Uh, they they so it, it's 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 sort of you know in biblical theology it's later down the road and necessary. But what does it do? It it has a context, and often those things are not really presented in that context. And even Paul, like in Romans, you know, he's going to go through and he, he assumes that you know the story, uh, that you know the story of Adam, that you know the story of Esau and Jacob, you know, that you know the story of Israel and Abraham. And, and if, you, if you don't have that story, 
then I think you're really you're really missing you know what Paul says, and so the the danger again is is that that if you extract things from the story, and then you're only getting bits bits and pieces, and and people just don't they don't remember in proposition you know they don't you don't wake up in the middle of the night typically with propositions, you know you remember things in images. And even your propositions in preaching are going to be more effective if they're put into some form of visual image, uh, more memorable. I mean, you can't really even, I would challenge, you know, could you, uh, even in some of the monks, some of the best preaching, you know, can you even remember what, you know, what, what the sermon was two, three weeks ago? Uh, but one time I was at this bank and uh, in the States, and this uh, woman was helping me with my account. And so I had a little time. I told her the story of Noah. And then four years later, I was in a different bank when I came back to the United States. And the woman had become a manager. I didn't recognize her, but it was at a different branch. And she says, oh, aren't you that guy that tells stories? And I'm like, what? <laughs> she goes, yeah, you told me the story. You told me the story about Noah. It is like four years later, this person remembers the exact story that I told. So yeah, we think in stories. We think in pictures. The gospel writers think in pictures. They're stringing pictures together. Paul helps us to understand the full, you know, meaning and application, let's say, and the implications of that story. But nothing in the Bible really can be understood apart from that story. So what I'm saying is, let's, yeah, you can deductively preach didactically, you know, from Pauline epistles, but don't do it all the time. And when you do it, give us the background, okay? Because that's what we need in culture today, we need an alternative story. You know, we need the biblical story as a defining worldview, really, for all of us. I think. No, I think I think the emphasis on pictures is quite um, interesting. So, especially from a propositional side, when you look at the prophets, then one can reduce it to the propositions of kind of judgment and coming redemption and so forth. But it wouldn't be as striking if you didn't have the imagery of. God plants a garden and he comes back to the garden and the gardens are bearing fruit. And so he rips up the garden kind of Isaiah. Um, sure. Like it makes it so striking. Like the yeah. imagery is so burnt into one's conscience. And I suppose that's where the poetry, which. Yeah. I mean, then that makes it even more difficult because, you know, sort of gotten into narrative and narrative preaching and story teaching and storytelling. But then when you get into prophets, you know, you have a lot of biblical uh, poetic imagery and um, I think those those are even more neglected. You know, yeah. we'll preach gospels, but and acts, but we 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 tend to avoid Ezekiel. <laughs> and those stories, I think, also have a way of engaging the whole person, engaging their emotions. So you become emotionally involved in in the story and the characters, yeah. and you identify. Um, so I would hold to the idea, you know, that I had um, is not original with me, but we're, but we've taken a book of stories. And we've tended to extract something from it, you know, a, an irreducible, you know, minimal gospel. And when we give bits and pieces, we don't do justice because what happens, people give assent to it. And that's even one of the challenges of straight deductive preaching. There can just be rational assent. Yeah, I agree with your argument. But there's something about a story that draws you in and challenges you and reflects, you know, you see yourself in the story and the characters and the thing is, this is what God gave us. And if we change it into something else, we haven't done anything particularly helpful, I don't think, in the process. Uh, so I would rather, rather than confronting someone with a proposition and say, you must repent, uh, you know, and they're probably never going to talk to me again, I would, rather, I would rather drop a story on them. Can I tell you a story? 
present them a story about the life of Jesus that they can walk away with, that will paint a, a visual picture, an image in their mind that they can remember that the Holy Spirit can use to draw them to Christ. Jay, it's been a very interesting conversation, and it's fascinating, the, all, your, all this thought on stories. And I know there's been a, an emphasis on stories or a rediscovery in some ways, like you just said, it's not original with you, a, a rediscovery of the importance of stories. And there are a lot of great resources out there um, that I think we've all benefited from. Uh, do you maybe want to close in sharing some of those? I think we will certainly have these links on the podcast as well. Okay. Um, but what have you found helpful in enriching your understanding of the biblical story? Well, let me, let me just say one more thing before we look at some of the resources. But the thing is, is that, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about stories. Advertisers talk about stories. Of course, you know, movie makers, you know, they tell stories. Uh, but I'm not so much just into story because people are into story and people remember stories and people can retell stories, although that's important. Of course, Jesus told stories. Uh, but I'm, I'm particularly interested in story because the, bib, the, the biblical narrative, the Bible itself, presents a unified story. And that's why it matters. And then it's made up of particular stories. And, of course, Jesus used that methodology itself. But I'm interested also particularly in the principal character of the biblical narrative, who I see as the triune God, is particularly revealed in the second person of the triune God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, you know and his death, burial, and resurrection. So that's, that's what really matters to me. That's why I'm into story, because the Bible is a story, and the gospel is a story, and I see the gospel as, as bigger than just a few facts that Jesus accomplished on my behalf, but I see the gospels themselves. It took four gospels to tell the story of Jesus, you know, the, and the story of Jesus is the gospel, is the good news about the fulfillment of Israel's history, God's plan to create or re restore creation or to alleviate the curse or to redeem and um, restore or make a new creation, right? So that's, that's what's really critical to me. Uh, and that's, that's the purpose of story and telling stories. Um, yeah, and some resources along the way that have, that have helped. Well, I mean, uh, you know, you have to kind of look at the Bible Project, Tim Mackey. I mean, he has a lot on story. If you look at his series on um, how to read the Bible, he yeah. explains characters, themes, um, various genres of scripture. Uh, he tells a story in a certain way himself. Um, if you want to tell the story from a covenant, I, I just recommend, you know, reading through the biblical narrative uh, as much as possible, there, there are books like The Story, which takes sections of the Bible and puts it together in like 31 different stories. I think that's helpful. Um, there's the whole orality movement, particularly Story Runners, which is part of uh, Crew, you know, formerly called uh, Campus Crusade. Um, they have a number of stories that are designed to tell the biblical story. Um, in terms of uh, telling the story more theologically, you know, you can learn it from the covenantal standpoint. My professor, O. Palmer Robertson, has a book, Christ and the Covenants. He has a smaller book on covenants as well. Um, the Kingdom Perspective, you know, you can look at more scholarly books like Gerhardus Voss on biblical theology, or, uh, but you can also look at Graham's Gold, Graham Goldsworthy, Gospel and Kingdom, or an easier book, um, God's Big Picture by Von Roberts. So you have, and, and then I like uh, Third Millennium Ministries, Dr. Richard Pratt, who I mentioned earlier. They have, you know, their whole thing is uh, theological education for the world for free. They've got all these videos that are done at a very high level. 
done very professionally. They're not just talking heads, but they have one particular uh, uh, class that I recommend called uh, Kingdom, Covenant, and Canon, where it goes through both the, the covenant theme and the kingdom theme. So you get this bigger themes in your mind, and then, and then just start telling the stories. Maybe if there are some individual biblical stories that really stand out to you, um, also that Story Runners website, they have ways of teaching you how to tell the stories. Um, there's a kind of methodology to that. Um, Great, thank you. Thank you, Jay. And thank you very much for taking the time to be with us this morning. Christian, do you have some No, it's very, very enlightening. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you.